Good morning. Our scripture reading and our passage this morning is in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 6 until 21, the last verse in the Bible. And he, the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through it. And now as we uh, consider this last book in your word to us, we pray that you would excite us by the news that Jesus is in fact coming soon. And Lord, challenge our hearts to be ready for that day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are two types of people in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Those who love suspense and those who love spoilers. This became apparent to me during the Leafs' playoff run, such as it was. When our boys would wake up in the morning, they did not want me to tell them who had won. Instead, they would watch the condensed game, 
10 minutes worth of major milestones and they would relive the ups and downs with it. They love the suspense. My wife, Allison, and daughter, Samantha, are the exact opposite. Dad, Sammy will say to me, can you just tell me who won? And then she'll ask me to do this so the boys don't see. They enjoy things more when they know the outcome in advance. They prefer spoilers. In the last book of the Bible, and in particular the last chapter, Revelation 22, we're presented with both suspense and spoilers. Suspense. Three times, Jesus delivers the exciting news, I am coming soon. Spoilers. We are given details on the events surrounding his coming. Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Yet he is gracious enough to give us a glimpse, spoilers if you will, of what is to unfold around the time of his coming. For the unbeliever, the return of Christ can sometimes be something to be made light of. The Apostle Peter writes about scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? It is also an event that is willfully ignored. Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. In some Christian circles, our brothers and sisters view the events depicted in Revelation as purely symbolic of eternal realities. Others are convinced that these events occurred during the first century of the church. Still, others insist that Revelation provides an overview of the church's entire history. But it is best to take Revelation as as it is written, a book that uses illustrative language to depict real-life events surrounding the return of Christ. Jesus said to the Apostle John, the author, at the beginning of the book, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. It is a revelation that should excite us. Jesus is coming soon. And it is a revelation that we can study and understand. John begins the book by writing this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We have three parties here three different beings, all working together to reveal for us God's will and purpose surrounding the return of Christ. We have the divine, we have the spiritual, and we have the physical, the Godhead, an angel, and John. And we see all throughout scripture that true statements are affirmed and confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses, and three witnesses are provided for us here. 
Godhead, angel, John. We understand also that God's mission to reveal his will was successful. Notice again, verses 1 and 2 say Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. What did John see? Well, very quickly, if we were to do a survey of the book, we would see this. John saw the glorified Son of Man, the living one, the one who died and is alive forevermore. He saw the rapture, a great multitude in heaven. He saw the throne in heaven. Judgments poured out on the earth in supernatural and devastating ways. Worldwide authority, dominion, subjugation. He saw persecution and martyrdom for followers of Jesus. He saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. He saw the return and thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth with his saints. He saw the defeat of Satan. He saw the resurrection and judgment of the dead, the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He saw eternity. And now, in this closing scene of Scripture, as God's word to his people is fully and completely revealed, followers of Jesus, his servants, are assured of three things. These events are real. The ramifications are real, and responses of the human heart are real. First, God's word reveals real-life events that surround the return of Christ. Just as Revelation opens, on one end, with a tri-party, interdimensional revealing of the will of God, it closes with the same thing. Jesus, the Son of God, the angel or messenger, and the apostle John joining together to attest to the certainty of God's will for the return and reign of Christ and the events surrounding that day. Divine, spiritual, and physical, all present and working together. Divine. Three times we have Jesus interjecting to say, I am coming soon. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, and behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. He adds in verse 16, I, Jesus, just so the reader knows who in fact is speaking, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Take it to the bank. I am coming soon. The spiritual. In verse 6, we have the angel saying, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. The same God who revealed his will and testified through the prophets about the coming of the Messiah is working in the same way to testify again about the second coming of the Messiah. If the first coming of Jesus and the events surrounding them were both prophesied and fulfilled literally, we expect, trust, and can know with confidence that he is working in the same way here. The angel even says so. Divine, 
spiritual and physical. John, in verse 8, writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. I am a first-hand witness. I observe these things with my own senses, with my own ears and eyes. John has used this kind of language before. In 1 John 1, in reference to Jesus, he writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life that was, which the, that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We cherish the first-hand witnesses of the disciples and the apostles who recorded Jesus' ministry, suffering, and resurrection for us in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. We believe them largely, in part, because they are eyewitness accounts scrupulously preserved for us. John was eyewitness to the incarnation, the ministry, transfiguration, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus. John was also an eyewitness again to the glorified, returning, and reigning Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. If we can understand, receive, and believe John's first eyewitness account, likewise can we believe his second, both witnessed through his own senses. Next, notice what the angel says in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. Everything you have seen, heard, and witnessed, John, is trustworthy and true. Trustworthy, often translated as faithful or believing in Scripture. Believe it. Count on it. The same word in the Greek is used by the resurrected Jesus when he appeared to Thomas, who doubted the resurrection. Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and put it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe it, Thomas. This is trustworthy. The Apostle Paul uses this phrase a number of times as well to underscore key fundamental truths in Scripture. In 1 Timothy 1, he writes, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the assurance of this revelation being true is used elsewhere in this book as well. In Revelation 19, the angel told John to write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. In Revelation 21, And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. For the Christian, if we are to believe the resurrection is true, if we are to believe that Jesus died to save sinners, 
if we believe and look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that Jesus will make all things new, if we believe all these things to be true, we should absolutely agree with the angel who said to John about Revelation that these words are trustworthy and true. Believe it. Count on it. We can also have confidence because John is invited to reveal to us what was revealed to him. The angel says to John in verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Do not conceal the words of this book. Do not keep them secret or hidden, but rather make them known. God's revealed truth is knowable to us, including this book. He invites us to know him by his word and by his spirit. Interesting, the prophet Daniel was also given the responsibility of seeing and writing about events surrounding the end. His book was also written in part through the revealing work of a messenger angel. Could this be the same angel that worked with John? Could be. Nevertheless, Daniel was instructed to shut up and seal the words of the prophecy given to him. Twice, in fact. In Daniel 12, Daniel writes that he did not understand what he was writing. I heard, but I did not understand, he wrote. Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Daniel asked the angel. But the angel said to Daniel, go your way, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Perhaps Daniel was instructed to shut up and seal what he saw because the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, had not been revealed in his first incarnation. Jesus can't be revealed the second time when he hasn't been revealed for the first in any event, we as believers, as readers of what John has recorded, we are invited to understand that Jesus is coming soon. And in the startling reality of what he has witnessed and recorded, John's misdirected reaction is to fall at the feet of the angel in worship, but the angel corrects him and says, worship God. The end goal, the objective, of God's revelation to us is that we worship him. So we can have confidence that what is being communicated to us represents real-life events surrounding the return of Christ. And the return of Christ carries with it real-life ramifications. First, we are told by Jesus himself that his return will happen quickly. Three times, as we have heard, Jesus interjects to tell us that he is coming soon. The word soon here does not mean imminently or any second now. It means quickly, speedily, without delay. As Warren Wearsby writes, when the great events surrounding his return start to occur, there will be no delay. Like a giant boulder, rolling down a great big hill. 
It may take some time to set that boulder in motion, but as it starts to roll, it picks up speed. It picks up power. It picks up momentum along the way, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But then Jesus attaches a couple of promises to his statement about coming soon. First, he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one. We've heard Jesus speak this way before. The Beatitudes given during the Sermon on the Mount. You could say that the book of Revelation contains the Beatitudes, volume 2, Seven beatitudes, or blessings, are given throughout this book. For example, Revelation 1, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. Revelation 16, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. These Beatitudes speak about those who are redeemed by God, responsive to the gospel, and ready to meet Jesus. And now in verse 7, Jesus is saying, I've revealed to you what is to happen. I have shared with you how I will hold you and bless you through these events. Now practice, cling to what I have told you. So Jesus' return will happen swiftly. We are blessed if we keep his words now verse 12, behold, I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is speaking to all people here, repaying each one for what he has done. Those who are followers of Jesus who have been born again and those who are not for those who are not, this is a dangerous position to be in. Romans reminds us that all have sinned, that there is no fear of God before our eyes, that there is none who is righteous, who does what is good. Isaiah tells us that even our good works done on our own, in our own effort, are as filthy rags. As the late Tim Keller puts it, mankind is both the prodigal son needing to be saved from our sins and the older brother needing to be saved from our own self-righteousness. This is the default position for all of us. And John writes in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And for those who will stay in their sin, mankind will come face to face with the one who is the complete revelation of the word and will of God. Jesus, who calls himself in verse 13, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is claiming complete and total divinity here. An all-encompassing title that speaks to the fullness of his holy attributes and the completeness of his authority. And those 
who are without him will find themselves outside of his presence, outside the eternal holy city. John writes that outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Not only that, those who are without Jesus will find themselves face to face with him without a defense, without an advocate. Two chapters earlier, John records for us what that outcome will be. He he writes this, Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus says, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And so here we are. In our family, we look forward, if you can believe this, to the time change in November. When the days get darker, quicker, because it means we can play one of our favorite games as a family. It's a variation of hide-and-seek. Once the sun goes down, all the lights in the house go out so that it is pitch black. One person seeks, the rest of us hide. If someone is caught, they have to go to a central spot in the house and wait to be freed by another hider who's trying not to get caught themselves. It is a lot of fun. Except I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at finding hiding spots. I usually end up ducking behind a curtain or behind a door, and I'm usually one of the first ones found. Brothers and sisters, The world is pitch black right now. There is wickedness and defiance against God, open hostility, rampant paganism. And in our sin, mankind hides from God. We scramble to duck behind chairs, slide under beds, and hide behind curtains, cram ourselves into closets. Revelation even records small and great calling for the mountains and rocks to fall on them so that they may be hidden from the wrath of God. But the Alpha and the Omega, the one who will judge the living and the dead, is also, in verse 16, the bright morning star who shines when night is at its darkest. He seeks those who are hiding in the darkness of sin. He turns the lights on and gives them understanding so that they may see the gravity of their own sin, that they have sinned against him, and he he frees them by offering himself perfect, righteous, and without sin as our substitute to receive God's wrath. Sin's penalty is paid. 
we are released from the clutches of death and given new everlasting life. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of this, those who have put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins do not need to fear the lake of fire. But with great hope, we look forward to the tree of life. Ready or not, he has sought us, found us, freed us, and we are made ready to dwell with him forever. John writes in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Notice the language used here. Blessed are the ones who wash their robes. An active response. There is an onus on all of us who have heard and who have understood the good news of what Jesus has done to respond to wash our robes, to accept forgiveness of sins by faith and to enter into the family of God. And when we do this, the return of Christ brings excitement because as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we look forward to a return to paradise, a return to the garden, without intrusion from sin or serpent. Once mankind was cast out of the Garden of Eden, one day we will be invited to enter the city by its gates. Once God supernaturally guarded the tree of life, so that mankind would not eat of it and live forever in sin. One day we will be invited to eat of it again in eternal life. Once creation and mankind, its stewards, were cursed. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. God's dwelling place will again be with man. And so this chapter closes, and we are left with a warning, an invitation, and an agreement. First, in verses 18 and 19, a warning to take God's word to us seriously. We are instructed not to tamper with it. In an age without copyright laws, when writings were duplicated by hand, John writes this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. God's word is not to be inflated or expanded, deleted from or reduced. It is also important that we do not minimize the things that are hard to understand. Next, the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who desires the water of life take without price. Look at how many times the word come is used here. There is nothing preventing you from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for the waters of eternal life. Come. God's people, the bride of Christ, led by his Holy Spirit, join in this tri-party attestation here. We join with the Godhead, the angel, and the apostle John and invite you to come. This water of life is freely available to all who will take it. And finally, the agreement. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. When I was a teen, I would become incredibly anxious and unnerved when someone would preach or teach about the return of Christ. Because I understood that there was trouble, persecution, and perhaps even martyrdom that surrounded that day. My mind was fixated on the devastating effects of mankind's fall into sin. Strife, war, hatred, envy, murder, the spoilers, what is to come, and the suspense, when it will come, would rattle me. But as a young adult, as I had renounced my own tepidness in faith and committed to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, the return of Jesus began to excite me because I knew that my battle with sin and its effects would cease and that the blessings we have spoken about today were for me. They are for you and I. Blessed is the one who keeps what is written, who stays awake, who shares in the first resurrection, who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I could rest in him as he originally designed me to do. As believers, we need to be careful that the return of Christ doesn't propel us into bunker mode, if I can call it that. Hunkering down to avoid the world until Jesus comes back, we have work to do, a calling, and his return brings an exceptional hope to us. We can move forward with confidence and with assurance. We can agree with Paul who says, we do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when Jesus tells us in verse 20, one final time, surely I am coming soon, we agree and say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, what great news that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact coming soon. That we will be united with him in his resurrection. That we will know eternal life 
that we will have a relationship with you the way you intended it for it to be in the beginning. That we will not be marred by our own fallenness or by the fallenness of, of those around us in the world. That creation will again thrive. Lord, we are so thankful that you provided a way for that to happen. That you have shone the light of the gospel into our hearts. And so we thank you. We pray that if there are those this morning that are still in darkness, that by your Holy Spirit you would convict them even this hour. Lord, that they would respond as you call them to do, that they would not wait, but that they would hear. And Lord, even as we come to your table, you instruct us to do this until you come. And so we seek to be faithful in that. We pray that you bless our time of remembrance and worship now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.